Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alphibunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 15th of April, and this podcast is George Hoare and myself, Alex Ohili. And today we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, well, not that special, but actually I should rephrase that. Actually, they're a very special non-guest. It's our very own Philip Cunliffe. Yeah, our very special, our special boy, our special Bunga boy. We don't um, often introduce ourselves this formally, but today, yes, we are joined by Philip Cunliffe, Senior Lecturer in International Conflict at the University of Kent and one of the co-hosts of the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history, Alpha Bunga Bunga. So Philip, thanks very much for making the time this evening. You're welcome. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for letting me on. We will have anyone on. No, we have a very we have a very strict vetting process for guests. So today we're looking at Phil's book from last year, The New 20 Years Crisis, 1999 to 2019, a critique of international relations. And so this is both a critique of the discipline of international relations, but also an account of the contemporary crisis of the liberal international order. So one of the things that we'll get into is how this book, as I'm sure Phil will explain, is itself a revisiting of one of the classic texts of IR, which is E.H. Carr's The 20 Years Crisis, 1919 to 1939. So looking back on that, uh, 80 years after its publication. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll get to discuss some of the, the echoes that that interwar period finds in the contemporary one. Phil, so just to, to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about the, before we get into the argument of Carr's book, a little bit about Carr himself, um, and for those who aren't IR scholars, what's his place in the history um, of IR as a discipline as well? Yeah, so Carr, he's known as one of the most important Cold War era historians of the USSR, in fact, and that's probably what he's most famous for. He's got this monumental multi-volume history of the USSR going up to the early 1980s from the Russian Revolution. He's also the biographer of Bakunin, as well as Marx and during the Second World War, he was also a hugely influential leader writer for the Times newspaper, um, which even drew him the ire, the ire, not IR as in the discipline, uh, the, but the anger of uh, various Thanks for Tories. clarifying. Yes, thank, uh, you're welcome. The, the anger of various Tories and debates in the Houses of Parliament. Um, he'd also been a British diplomat um, during the Paris peace treaties, the negotiations leading to the Paris peace treaties that brought the First World War to an end, and had been stationed as a diplomat in the Baltic states during the interwar period during, while they were independent and before they were annexed by Stalin. Um, so, I mean, he's kind of had, uh, he had a life which gave him a kind of a tremendous deal of perspective in the first part of the 20th century, at least, on the kind of high politics and diplomacy of the of the time. Um, and then he occupied, um, before the during the 1930s and before the Second World War broke out, he occupied the Woodrow Wilson Chair of International Politics at what was then the University College of Aberystwyth, um, uh, which is a Victori- was a Victorian-era seaside resort town on the Welsh coast. And by this kind of uh, iron or this quirk of fate, it ended up being the first place to have an academic department which was devoted to the study of international politics. He was endowed by a wealthy industrialist and powerful liberal politician of the day, uh, David Davis, who was also a strong supporter of Woodrow Wilson and the Wilsonian vision of international politics. Mm. And Davis in particular was horrified by the fact that such a staunch opponent of liberal internationalism as Carr turned out to be uh, an occupant of the chair prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. And I suppose what makes Carr so interesting from our vantage point, I mean, there's many reasons, but one in particular is that he's, in his book, he's a fierce critic 
of the liberalism of the day and the liberal internationalism of the day of the interwar period. And he right. saw this as an attempt to revive the high liberalism of the 19th century of the Victorian era as kind of one last gasp of liberalism before it was um, kind of swept away by the Second World War, by the rise to um, superpowerdom of the USSR and by the, um, the kind of the new um, welfare state consensus that emerged in the wake of the Second World War. So he's a fierce critic of an earlier right. attempt to revive liberalism. And because we're going through a disintegration of liberal order again, um, after the era of neoliberalism from the 1970s to, I suppose, um, the early 210s, the, you know, maybe 2016, 2008, whatever. A kind going... of ne neoliberal order breakdown. If you will, yeah, I guess. I mean, that could that would be maybe one way to term it. Yeah, so the breakdown of neoliberal order, because we're going through another cycle of that. It seemed to me an opportune moment um, to revisit Carr. I was listening a lot to this particular podcast, and it made me think about earlier criticisms of liberal <laughs> order, and so I thought I would um, revisit one of the most significant critics of mm. liberalism 2.0. I think that's really useful on Carr. Um, and he said that his, you know, he's a staunch critic of, of liberalism. But what was his reading in this in this particular book, the period 1919 to 1939? Looking back on it from today, it's you know I think it's characterised as a basically a period of complete chaos, breakdown, rise of fascism, a lot of black and white, you know, um, ominous videos of of bad people massing in the street, Europe careering towards the second world war just like now just like now but wow, the, indeed but the, the color videos now but yeah so what what is you know car as this critic of liberalism what's car's analysis of this interbellum period um and why is this you know why is this reading or this book so important within ir yeah so since the great financial crash of 2008 and all the kind of the backwash the political backwash that's followed um rise of national populism, I guess, in the Western world, um, the election of Donald Trump, most obviously in 2016, many, you know, I mean, endless commentators and analysts, they've repeatedly harked back to the interwar period as a harbinger of things to come for us. Economic depression, um, revived geopolitical rivalry, increasing nationalism and xenophobia. And then eventually, presumably, you know, if that kind of sequence played out, it would be the wholesale collapse of international order. Yeah. Um, and so what's interesting about Carr was, at least in the book, is how relative in his book, the original New 20 Years Crisis is, sorry, the original 20 Years Crisis. Um, what's interesting about Carr was how relatively calm he was about the supposed collapse of the interwar order. And in his book, The 20 Years Crisis, um, the reason, I mean, he was calm about it was because he saw it as this attempt to artificially prolong as I mentioned, to artificially prolong 19th century liberalism and to smother the, the new era of geopolitical rivalry and economic competition that was breaking out to kind of try and contain that and smother it in Victorian era liberal internationalism. And in his reading, um, uh, that what happened in the 1920s and 1930s is that this revival of liberal internationalism was driven by the US because unlike Europe, um, the US hadn't yet transcended the liberal idealism of the 19th century. It had benefited from this unparalleled economic and political expansion because it faced no geopolitical threats on its own continent. And this avoided, this enabled the US to avoid reckoning with the hard realities of competition for power um, with rivals of equal strength. 
So he counterposed um, this kind of naive liberal idealism or utopianism, as he called it, with what he styled as realism. And for him, realism was the beginning of scientific thought in the study of international politics, which is to say a kind of a more inductive analysis, which was rooted in the fractious and conflictual reality of interstate politics. And so his the critique, the book that he wrote, it was taken as one of the founding texts of the discipline because he explicitly styled it as founding a new science of international politics. And the reason it was scientific is because it was rooted in the realities of mass politics, in the growth of state power and in nationalism that was kind of bursting the inherited dogmas of 19th century liberalism. And it's kind of ironic because the book also, ironically, it marked the high water, it was the kind of high watermark of British international relations, because by the end of the Second World War, the discipline had really become an American one. Um, right. It was kind of set up by an influx of German academics fleeing the Nazis, and they would lay the grounds for the Cold War era discipline in the major US universities. So just just to be clear, the, um, in terms of that, um, what did Carl see as the the origin of of the crisis of 1919 to 1939? Is it just um, a, a case of the US acting with a um, in a certain way in international relations with an with a, essentially an outdated or outmoded or historically um, redundant at that point framework, or is yeah, it so... or is it a materialist uh, or is it kind of there is there is economic conflict between great powers in Europe, and so it's this is you know, necessarily going to lead to a crisis? So the the circumstances that the kind of uh, particular conjunction of geopolitical and economic circumstances that were behind the era of high liberalism of, in the Victorian era, those had gone. Um, the US missed this um, and therefore tried to kind of reimpose it in the wake of the First World War. Um, and so it's the attempt to... So it, was, it was never going to work. Yeah, essentially that's his analysis. So, mm. and that the the framework which was which the U.S. tried to impose on the messy reality of post-war Europe in 1919, so it laid sowed the seeds for the crisis of the 1930s, when German power began to reassert itself, as was inevitably the case, given the centrality of Germany to to European politics and the interwar order that had been established in the Paris Peace Treaties that ended the First World War began to crumble. One of the key terms um, that you mentioned already, but that, that comes out, you know, really strongly in the book is uh, Carl's understanding of utopianism, which you know is still the political unconscious of much of contemporary IR. So what did Carl mean by this term? Um, and how's it, how was it useful for him to understand um, the crisis of that 1919 to 39 period? Yeah, so what's particularly interesting about it is when you debate the interwar period, utopianism um, is often used interchangeably with idealism or liberal idealism. And when Carr said utopianism, he meant it to apply to Wilsonian liberalism. Unlike us, right? Because from our vantage point of the early 21st century, um, we generally use utopianism to refer to fascism or communism in the sense of um, kind of, uh, you know, um, these artificial doctrines that simply cannot fit the actual reality of human life. Because so I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, utopia actually means no place. So now oh, really? these are called utopian because that's really <laughs> Alex is looking at me like thank you. That's a that's bottom ten really... percent joke. Really... That's a bottom ten percent intervention. Thanks, George. That's that's um, very useful. 
But so, no, so sorry to get it back on track. It's specifically then a liberal utopianism, not a kind of yeah. um, trying to make a society that doesn't exist, as we call well, it. Well, that, which, which sounds point, kind of right? odd to us as well. Right. Sorry to just jump in, but yeah, like liberal utopianism is something that we're not really or well, we seem not point. to be familiar exactly. with, right? Yeah, that's the point exactly, right? So the the point was that liberalism was utopian. It was an ideology of a no place. It didn't. Um, there was no kind of circumstances that fit that fit that framework. And so from our vantage point, it's remarkable and striking that he didn't use um, utopianism to refer to fascism or communism, um, whereas he did use it to refer to liberalism. And he identifies five traits of utopian thinking, but arguably the most important one um, is the idea of the harmony of interests. And this is the idea taken from 19th century liberalism. So that all essentially the view being, at least in Carr's take, is that all political conflict is essentially the friction of adaptation. So that there is essentially that all um, all human kind of societies and polities and communities converge in an underlying common interest, which is essentially economic. Everyone has a mutual interest in um, the expansion of uh, open markets and free trade. And as a result of this, this will lead to a spontaneous convergence among all of those different countries, states, peoples, nations. So according to this view, everyone shares essentially the same interests. Everyone has the same interest in free trade and open markets, and all interests will converge. Political conflict will wither away. Um, and, this, and so political conflict is fundamentally irrational and even amoral from this liberal perspective that fuses economics and politics into a single integrated universal good. Oh, that sounds sounds nice. Get some, get yourself some perpetual peace and exactly. some for everyone else as well. So um, this view of political conflict, it's it's basically sees this is the utopian, his critique of utopianism, that it sees political conflicts essentially just as insubstantial froth. And because they froth. don't understand political conflict, this is why liberals fared so poorly in the interwar period. So just just um one quick question and then and then moving on to maybe IR as a as a discipline before bringing Alex in but just so I guess when listeners are thinking of liberal utopianism in that interwar period what in you've already mentioned Wilson what sort of institutions or what sort of events um are particularly good illustrations of this you mean of the like how, how was it? How was it enacted, or how was it instantiated? This liberal utopianism was it through diplomats? Was it the League of Nations? You know, is it was it just America acting in this way? You know, what are the sort of um, illustrations that he brings in of this to kind of illustrate what so liberal utopianism looks specific like? Pr- specific clauses and provisions of the Paris Peace Treaties and the Treaty of Versailles in particular that were unable to account for the inevitable um, return of German power given the fact that Germany was prostrate at the end of the First World War, but also the design of the League of Nations and its particularly um, technocratic approach to resolving conflict, its inability to see conflict um, as rooted in fundamental incompatibility. And so its attempts to resolve conflict peacefully, according to Carr, paradoxically made the situation worse because you needed to have the, um, the reality. You needed to be able to have conflict, conflictual interests openly expressed and honestly expressed in order to be able to negotiate honestly. Whereas mm-hmm. with the kind of um, the moral universalism that was um, 
kind of uh, promoted by the liberalism of the league meant that everybody cast their claims in grandiloquent terms of universal morality and justice um, and in these kind of high-flown phrases that made diplomacy deeply dishonest and no one was able to actually get down to brass tacks of negotiating Mm. the interests that they actually had and wanted and so according to Carr it's kind of it's a whole kind of gamut from the kind of the structure of power that America tried to impose in the aftermath of the First World War, right down to the retor- the kind of political and diplomatic rhetoric that clouded the conduct of um, negotiations and the way in which states tried to accommodate each other's interests. Nice. No, I think it's, it's really useful to have that kind of that historical background laid out before we kind of, I guess, get into assessing the present day. And before we turn on to some of those questions, just um, one final thing that I wanted to ask um, was in the first part of this interview is about IR as a failed discipline. I mean, one of the things that you lay out in the book about IR today is just the wholesale collapse of any pretensions of actually being an intellectual discipline. Um, that provides any sort of scholarly critique different to the practice of ordinary argument by lay people. Um, you, I mean, I think it, it wouldn't surprise me if one or two of the examples that you draw are just fake, just put in there to, and nobody notices, and that's kind of the they're point really of not. what you're doing. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I love the same. <laughs> no, no, they're really not. It's all so true. you point to IR studies of everything from urinals in Scottish pubs to Hello Kitty um, to scholars dressing up as their favourite characters from Star Wars or Game of Thrones. Um, I mean, this this apparently really happened. Um, but what, what example best illustrates this, best encapsulates this kind of the present state of what IR? So if if that was the high watermark, at least of, of British IR, and, you, you know, there's you didn't go into it in, in complete detail, but there's there's clearly um, the development of a, of a, you know, quite a complicated picture of of what states are and what they do and how they interrelate to each other and all these sorts of questions of, of power economics, society, and so on. But what is the example that best encapsulates where IR is um, today as a, as a failed or loser discipline? <laughs> so there's one event in particular that still stands out for me. I was at a disciplinary, so a major convention in Barcelona in 2017, and this was a few weeks, uh, maybe a month, um, before the the municipal government or the, the regional government held the vote on independence for Catalonia, um, which the central government in Madrid had already said they would, they refused to recognize its legitimacy. And as part of this convention, there was a major round table with some leading supposedly critical thinkers in the discipline. Um, if the room big was names. packed. Big yeah, names big, at the top table. Big names at the top table. The room was packed out. I mean, I'd say, you know, it's a big kind of uh, lecture theater style gathering. And I, you know, say probably, I don't know, 200 people in the room. Um, and not one of not one of the panelists. There were about four or five people on the panel. Not one of them mentioned the upcoming referendum on Catalan independence, nor indeed any of the kind of um, the larger questions of world politics at the time. And this was also the period when Donald Trump was saber rattling against North Korea because this was before the Singapore summit with Kim Jong Un. And so, when someone in the audience pointed out the kind of this introspection and obliviousness on the part of the panelists, this was swatted aside. Um, by saying that the diplomatic crisis over Korea was of no consequence because the Joint Chiefs of Staffs would stop Trump if he did anything rash or um, irrational. And I remember I was completely astounded by this totally blasé response. And I wasn't astounded. It wasn't so much because I thought there was a significant risk of nuclear war over Korea. 
but rather because these leading supposedly critical thinkers were effectively happy to rely on the US deep state to constrain a democratically elected leader so that they could continue pontificating on their favorite on their favored topics and on top of that this total contempt for the major national question that was about to erupt in Barcelona a few weeks after the conference so, um, so, so I, I mean, I mean I, can I just that, jump in that seemed to me to to speak to the what you said George well I mean I so I love that anecdote I mean I love reading that in the book and obviously the bit about the scholars ignoring what was going on in Catalonia right there is pretty shocking. But at the same time, I kind of wanted to to push back on, on Phil's interpretation because isn't their reliance on the deep, not reliance on the deep state, but their analysis that the deep state will stop Trump doing anything crazy, um, precisely a an act of, of realism or, or a kind of them using a, a realist lens and just looking at the realities of power that basically the US deep state would prevent Trump from doing anything too crazy because of their own calculations and the, the certain amount of rationality embedded in those institutions and whatever. And so your complaints, Phil, that these scholars are ignoring democracy, well, that's just idealism, right? That's just sort of liberal idealism caring about democracy. Uh, the, those scholars knew about the hard reality of power, that the deep state would intervene to stop a democratically elected president from firing a nuclear missile, for example. Yeah, so I suppose two, you could I'd say two things in response. The first is that they... Um, you know, they're supposedly critical. So if they're, you know, and that the casual kind of reliance, effective reliance on their, or the legitimacy that they granted to the deep state is in conflict with the claims that they would, um, the way in which they would style themselves as critical luminaries. But the second thing is also that um, it's a, if it is kind of a political realism, it's a very fragile political realism because it's based on opposition to mass politics. So it's based on the idea of um, these kind of embedded institutions that are needed to restrain mass politics. And that seems to me at some level, though it might be kind of, um, it seems to me not so much realistic as um, a veneration of um, of power and a veneration of a very fragile, you know, a power of power that has been shown to be uh, more fragile than we thought. Um, in the particular period that we're living through. Um, I mean, you might call it the end of the end of history, perhaps, something like that. No, sure. But I mean, if there isn't mass politics, then a cold, hard-headed analysis of power and the exercise of it, and, and we'll look at the players on the chessboard um, and not talk about things like the masses or mass involvement in politics and democracy and so on, because if the if the masses aren't on the move, then they're not a player and they don't matter. And oh, sure. That. But I suppose the point is the disorder was breaking down and they were oblivious to it. Right. So, you know, I mean, you know, you could be kind of um, they, you know, they suppose in one sense, you know, they were also uh, blithely accepting of the power of the central government in Madrid to crack down on the Catalan referendum, which indeed they did, you know, with a significant degree of brutality and um, uh, contempt for um, kind of municipal democracy and the um, kind of the wishes of Catalan people in the in that part of Spain. Um, and that indicates kind of a breakdown, right? The disintegration of a particular kind of prevailing political system. So that doesn't seem to me to be realism in a meaningful sense, because it is um, ignoring the reality 
possibility of political conflict. And also, you know, while I mean, I take Alex's point, this is, I suppose, um, this is what I'm trying to get at is that there is a complicity between the kind of claims made by these critical scholars who claim to be distanced from um, critical, hostile, suspicious of existing institutions of power, when in fact they're in many ways bound up with it, complicit with it, reliant on it, to the extent that they would only kind of raise it when somebody criticizes them. So this wasn't kind of, an, you know, the claim about um, the deep state wasn't made in a critical way. Um, and it wasn't made in a kind of, it wasn't the discussion, it wasn't the opening gambit in a debate about um, what was going to happen over Korea or, and like I say, nobody even mentioned. Well, happening yeah. I mean, putting, putting aside to one minute, I guess the, the possible contradiction between um, or, or just the, the re reality that critical pretensions are not uh, matched by critical uh, thinking. There certainly seems to be some sort of theoretical uh, shortcoming there to not be able to recognize um, an order in, in, uh, crisis and mistaking some aspects of fragility for solidity. Um, but maybe just to move on to and to link this to what are some of the central theoretical premises of contemporary IR that maybe explain that that kind of inability to, to, to analyze or to find analytically interesting some of these questions that you, you illustrated in your anecdote, Phil. Um, one of the things that comes through in the book is that this you know that basically IR is the the theorization or the study um, of a certain sort of unipolar globalization and, and and this idea of the liberal international order in decline comes through as probably one of the the things that you would put forward as as a kind of way to to, to look at um, what IR is. Could you maybe just expand on on how you see the the kind of characteristic theoretical approach of of IR? Um, um, what does it look like? Yeah, so the I characterize it as unipolar globalization, and the point of that was to say that the um, that effectively, in the circumstances of this of the last thirty years, in which you've had overweening um, supremacy by the U.S. at the global level, um, that it has overseen this enormous expansion of the global economy by drawing in. Um, East Asia, China in particular, into the global economy, and that that has been the underpinnings of the um, liberal political order that we've seen recreated at the end of the Cold War um, for the last 30 years or so. And that this is, however, that this is effectively um, this reality and the fact that it conditions all questions of um, our frameworks, of our understanding of conflict, of politics, of the theories. None of it, it's not actually that there's been a failure to acknowledge how much all of our ideas and frameworks are rooted in this underlying political reality. Um, and as a result of this, they've become, there's a tremendous degree of uh, kind of uh, conceited complacency with respect to the basic questions of power. So, for instance, um, that everything as a result of this kind of overwhelming US power, what I think we've seen effectively is a recreation of the idea of a harmony of interests. So we've seen the same kind of phenomenon that all, con all political conflict is essentially irrational and the basic kind of political task of the day is homogenization of one sort or another. So liberalization, democratization, the spread of human rights, of what's, prevailing gender norms in the West. What's, a, what's a good example of this? Sorry, just to, just to jump in there. 
So bombing Afghanistan to bring them um, women's rights, for instance, which we've been doing for the last 20 years, you know, until um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Well, except, you know, now that obviously just the other day or just yesterday, uh, the Biden administration announced the belated withdrawal from Afghanistan in September, 20 years after the um, terror attacks um, on the U.S. in 2001. So this um, this unipolar globalization has recreated this idea that everything, that all political conflict is essentially irrational, that it's froth, that there are no real political antagonisms, that there's no real political, meaningful political conflict that isn't just kind of um, the friction, a temporary friction as we adapt to the same underlying common interest. And essentially, all of the, the claim is, particularly in our study and understanding of international politics, that all of our claims are reflect this underlying geopolitical reality, whether they're conscious of it or not. And the problem so, is that most of most of the people talking in international politics have not been conscious of this underlying geopolitical reality. Hmm. So IR is the study of temporary friction in the movement towards um, perpetual peace. Alex? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things, that. which I thought was, uh, well, I guess you sort of hint at, Phil, but which I found really remarkable, when you're talking about the way that the the kind of all boundaries have broken down um, in IR, right? So people study IR will study all sorts of things, high and low, left and right, up and down, you know, kind of all areas of of social life and brought into the study of international relations, which is crazy because I mean I I mean I studied I did IR at my undergrad, but at that time I don't remember there being such zany. I mean there were maybe some a couple of zany things at the far fringes of critical theory, but it wasn't like of like IR critical theory, but it wasn't like a a mainstream preoccupation, but the way you described it in the book, it sounds like there's loads of people doing loads of stuff at serious conferences and so on about stuff like Hello Kitty or whatever, you know, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, you know, that's stuff that kind of cultural studies might do, but I was amazed to learn that IR did it. And then it kind of hit me and I maybe kind of you suggested in the book, which is that that maps on really well to globalization because globalization is the flattening of the world, the breaking down of boundaries, supposedly, and that the intellectually, the discipline of IR comes to reflect intellectually what is happening materially in the world with um, with globalization, where there's no real boundaries between things. The states become permeable. There's no real hierarchy between you know the state and then kind of non-state actors. They all inhabit on the same plane. So and that therefore, as an IR academic, you can just as much study states as you can go and study um, some small kind of fetishism around a a commodity of like, you know, a kind of community around Hello Kitty or whatever the hell it is, because um, all these things are equally valid. Yeah. And so the underpinning for that is globalization and American power. So I make the case that kind of the expansion of the discipline. So, you know, I mean, a normal person, I think a lay person would think that IR is about international politics, international relations is about the study of politics between countries. And the fact that it kind of the discipline burst its bounds in the last 30 years and spilled over into saturating so many things with meaning, you know, from like, you know, from, I don't know, uh, you know, kind of the relevance of Star Wars, Hello Kitty. I mean, the examples are just endless and tedious, um, but it burst its bounds. And the fact that it burst its bounds kind of reflects also the um, this imperial globalization, essentially. Um, the expansion, if you wanted to say kind of the expansion of the American empire, 
was reflected in the expansion of the discipline itself, that everything kind of became internal to the discipline, just in the same way that globalization taught us there was nothing that couldn't be commodified. Um, international relations taught us there was nothing that couldn't be studied as if it was part of the same kind of political system. So this this is the um, just to clarify here. So you're talking about the basically the the second half of the 20th century. This is the this is where these developments so, really yeah, played even themselves. Even in out. the last 30 years, I mean, okay. so, so since the end of the Cold War, okay. so the last 10 years of the last century and the first 20 years of this century. Cool. So maybe to move on to your reading of the crisis, uh, 1999 to 2019. Um, cause obviously this is one thing that you're saying is that we have this, you know, this echo of, of the previous crisis that we, you know, we talked about, um, with cars reading of it. What's, what are the key events of this crisis? You know, what does it look, what does it look like? What's the explanation? Um, and then, you know, is, is it right to finish in, in 2019? We can maybe get onto, onto that point or we still, we still undergoing it, but several yeah. questions there. You can pick your your favorite to, to kick off but tell us about crisis yes yeah, so the contention of the book or the conceit of the book is that we've been through a similar 20-year cycle of crisis a rise and fall of another another version of liberal international order if you want to say liberal you know liberalism 3.0 perhaps um, which can be stretched from 1999 to 2019 and it begins so in 1999 there are two in particular two events which which i think legitimate um, the identifying the start of our 20-year crisis then. It begins with the formation of the euro on the international currency markets and with NATO's war over Kosovo. And it ends in 2019 with the eruption of um, sustained popular protests around the world in late 2019 um, before planetary lockdown sets in with the spread of the coronavirus from East Asia. So there's a famous, or well, or rather, well, I mean, I don't know if it's famous, but a well-known editorial from The Economist magazine in late 2019, which says the planet is in revolt because there were so many kind of disc, all these um protests erupting all around the world for all sorts of different reasons in in the wake of the growing kind of political turbulence and economic crisis. And then um, it's all kind of effectively shut down by the states, various states of emergency that are imposed by governments around the world with the outbreak mm, so, of the coronavirus. So, so it really it's kind of early 2020, it finishes, but that'll be a bit less, a bit less neat. A bit less neat. We can, we can give you that. It's, it's 20, you know, Thanks, it's, it's, it's 20 years it. and 11 months. Or yeah, whatever. So 20 you... years, 20 years and maybe a couple of months. But I yeah. suppose the point being that I think it is legitimate to use the outbreak of the coronavirus um, and the state, the kind of international response to it as a kind of to punctuate a particular, the end of a particular cycle. Yeah. Um, but the beginning of the cycle, so the Eurozone, I mean, so it's an attempt to construct a currency. This is, and this is important with respect to car, I suppose, because it's an attempt to construct a currency union without a fiscal union in Europe. And it is, I mean, it, there is, it is utopian. There is no other way, I think, to just to kind of capture the sheer irrationality of it. It's a monumental liberal folly. And I think it exceeds the liberal utopianism of Cars Day for sheer derangement and naive destructiveness. Um, and, you know, as indeed with the liberal idealism of the interwar period, the liberals double down on it. They, amplif they amplify its destructive elements and they insist in true utopian style that we will see convergence at some, you know, um, that it transcends national politics and that it is the harbinger of a glorious future. So 
that was, you know, that's one thing it begins, that Euro is officially formed in 1999. And the Kosovo War is the other element of it. And this was the liberal war par excellence. So again, the claim was that it transcended the kind of the parochial, egotistical interests of nation states. It was a war fought for human rights, um, an air campaign waged by NATO states, by a supranational alliance. And it flouted the sovereignty of the Serbian state because it was interfering in an internal conflict uh, by seeking to hold the Serbian state's efforts to crush a secessionist insurgency in Kosovo. And the important element, I suppose, is that both of these moments lay the seeds of what would come subsequently. So the success of the Kosovo war would lure the US and the UK into overreach in Iraq in 2003. So effectively, it was Kosovo that inaugurated the forever war. Um, I think, mm. you know, and I think that's an important point to make. The idea of spreading the liberal ideals of human rights and democracy, becoming the rationale for war without any um, limit in terms of where those wars might end, because obviously spreading liberalism and human rights is um, something that will go on forever, could go on forever. Um, and then the Eurozone debt crisis of the mid 2010s, um, which. Um, you know, the final chapter of that hasn't is yet to be written. So starting off with kind of intervention that leads to forever war and a kind of an attempt to build a, a liberal utopian community and ending really finally with the um, coronavirus outbreak. That's, you know, I think a nice sandwiching of that period. Hello, listener. Alex here. Sorry to interrupt, but we've got some very exciting news to tell you. That's right, BungaCast is pregnant. The end of the end of history is soon here. The book, co-written by the three hosts of this podcast, will be out on the 25th of June. The end of the end of history, politics in the 21st century, is our attempt to synthesize the discussions we've been having on this podcast for the past four years, and to advance an argument as to how and why the deadening end of history period had to end, and to look forward to what comes next. In it, we describe what the end of history felt like, and why what we're now experiencing is such a huge rupture. The hysteria of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, the rise and fall of the left populism of Bernie or Corbyn, multiple varieties of angry anti-politics around the world, the new culture wars and mass protests, these are all facets of our new time. We also look at how new ideologies are emerging under the impact of the pandemic, which are set to rule the world for the next decade, and of course, our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi, makes a big appearance. Understand his biography and his way of doing politics, and you understand the past 30 years. The book's available to pre-order now. Go to bungacast.com book, where there's direct links to your favorite bookseller. Happy reading. We really do hope you enjoy it. It struck me, Phil, actually reading this discussion, or reading actually, your, well, your discussion of this new 20 years crisis in the book, that there's this, um, well, imperial overreach. And I think when people say imperial overreach, uh, you know, you're thinking about the U.S. going into Iraq and, um, you know, that sort of whole folly there um, where it didn't or really about need Star to go Wars. in. Or I don't, I don't know anything about Star Wars, so it, I'm definitely not thinking about that. Um, so, but, but actually there's a kind of deeper sense of, of imperial overreach, more than just military, crazy military adventures, um, which... I mean, I, I like the, this term that you use, inverted revisionism, where, um, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what that term actually means, but in some sense, it's a sort of the winners of this, the situation, the winners of the Cold War, um, 
instead of just governing this new order, exercising their hegemony and just kind of enjoying it and uh, maybe handing out some scraps to make sure that everybody's happy, start going further and further and further um, where they don't need to, kind of undermining their, their own order. And that actually struck me like not thinking about international politics, but about domestic politics, where you have the same sort of, I guess, imperial overreach or in your terms, in inverted revisionism, where post-politics at home as well is not just, hey, we've won, you know, the kind of working class has been defeated, and therefore we're just going to govern this and make sure that people's incomes are reasonably supported so that everyone's happy and no one revolts ever again. Instead, they just push harder and harder. They repress wages more and more. They try to foreclose political contestation and create a, an almost sort of totalitarian system. I mean, not in the sense of the um, mid-century period, um, but a totalitarian system in the sense of having a, just a kind of only one way of going about things, um, total kind of technocratic control. Um, so, and I guess you could contrast that with mid-century corporatist arrangements where, yeah, there was a domestic opponent, there was the working class, um, but you try to bring them in because you feared them. You feared the alter, the other or the subaltern and you tried to negotiate, right? So you get them around the table, you get trade unions together with corporations and everybody negotiates. The post-Cold War period is like, we've already won and we're going to keep obliterating you and we're going to keep trying to, and, and which ends up um, coming home to roost as we're seeing now, you get populist eruptions and so on against this order. And it seems to me like, that's a correlate of what happened in international politics, that instead of governing this new post-Cold War period and making everything nice, they went too far, they overreached. Yeah, so revisionism is a, is a more technical term from the study of international politics. And the idea is revisionist, that the, the kind of the classical era of revisionist states has taken to be the interwar period. Um, so those powers who are excluded or in some ways oppressed or dissatisfied with the outcome of the Paris peace treaties at the end of the First World War, that they wish to revise that, the outcome of that, um, and therefore revisionists. They want to remake the international order to better accommodate their growing, um, their growing power and interests. And so the classic, you know, the kind of classical revisionist states are imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy, all of whom use the real the bad guys. Well, they use the injustices, um, the outcomes of the treaties which dissatisfied their populations in various ways as justifications for their expansionism, their attempts to kind of flout international law, their attempts to remake international order and to subvert the rule of the League of Nations, the international organization of the day. Um, so that's the kind of the, proto the prototype of revisionist powers. Um, and then, you know, the debate is repeated um, subsequently. So one of the debates right now is, you know, is China revisionist power or not? Um, or is it kind of more or less satisfied with the status quo? And what I suggest in the book is that what we see, in fact, is the weird kind of what happens very weirdly at the end of the Cold War is the status quo powers are the ones who are revisionist. And this is kind of unexpected from the from the kind of classical correlates of international, the study of international politics, that the US kind of um, becomes increasingly hubristic and overambitious and effectively goes on a rampage. There is no need for it because it's already on top and it's already won the Cold War. Why is there the need to spread democracy to places like Iraq um, or to bomb Libya or to try and overthrow the regime in Syria or to make sure that women have rights in Afghanistan. I mean, there's no kind of geopolitical necessity to any of these conflicts. So 
it's remarkable. It's a kind of remarkable and strange thing. And this is why I say it's inverted revisionism, because rather than the kind of the dissatisfied powers, it's the those who benefit the most from the status quo who are engaged in revising the international order. So it's a remarkably strange thing. And I think that it, you need you need kind of um, to acknowledge the sheer irrationality and the wantonness of the destruction of Iraq, for instance, um, mm. on the basis of uh, on the basis of what's essentially a naive liberal idealism. So that's the so that's the kind of uh, the idea of inverted revisionism. I'm not quite sure there's an exact correlate in domestic politics, and it's an intriguing thought, but I'm not sure there's an exact fit. And I'm very, I mean, I'd be, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the idea of saying that Western liberal democracies, for all their kind of um, pettiness and crudity and oppressiveness, particularly in the wake of lockdown, that they're, you know, totalitarian in any meaningful way. No, but but total um, in the sense, totalizing in the sense of not really having any real opposition anymore i mean if we're talking about the end but of they didn't period. but i'm not sure that they you know i'm not sure that they pursued that they you know kind of pursued their victory and also that they rampaged you know it seems to me that there was kind of um there was didn't they, the, the, the increase in state power the increase in surveillance all this stuff which is unnecessary no, sure, to manage that, populations because the population was already quiescent Working class uh, was defeated. Point, you know, sure, but I'm not sure that they that they were driven that they was driven by this kind of um, hubristic attempt to to extend um, the gains that had already been made. And it seems to me there was also kind of many attempts to um, to kind of pacify to pacify domestic populations, um, but in a way that was um, kind of uh, manipulative and soft coercion rather than kind of the outright brutality that we saw with the forever war. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's a, it's a thought. It hasn't, it didn't occur to me, but I'm not sure that there is a kind of a precise domestic correlate to what we see in the international arena. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about state failure um, with, with Lee Jones on <clears throat> some previous episodes. And I think there's some interesting <clears throat> points to pick up there in terms of what states have, have been able to, and have, have ended up doing with respect to their, the populaces. Um, but I wanted to raise a question about the implications of seeing this, this period 1999 to 2019 as a period of crisis and particularly reading it in the way you do, um, you know, back, back onto the, the period of, of interwar crisis that, that Carr wrote his book about. So I think maybe to put this a kind of finer point on it, if, if you have, you know, does this mean that we, need to retain these models from that period um should does this lead to a politics of anti-fascism and anti-appeasement you know are we uh, should we be on the lookout for the next um league of nations failing should we kind of support an eu and a nato army you know should shouldn't we just um bulk up those um those institutions you know because we don't want another another fascism on, on the rise yeah exactly so um the e the i suppose the ease or the felicity with which it's possible to um draw parallels with the interwar period um i don't think that's accidental um in the sense it's not just a kind of an aesthetic exercise or an intellectual game but i think the fact that it can be done rep tells us something significant about the structure of international order itself which is that liberal internationalism itself depends on, it, it's legitimated by pulling us back from the precipice. 
So the structure, the 20 years crisis, the one of the claims of the book is that the 20 years crisis is in effect built into the functioning of liberal international order itself, because liberalism at this kind of deeply kind of decayed and senescent form that we have now, late liberalism by the beginning of the 21st century, it can only legitimize, legitimize itself by kind of holding us back from the precipice of, um, and this is why... Uh, um, you know, how many times we're kind of warned of the dangers of appeasement, how many times we're warned about the dangers of um, a depression, which will lead to the rise of um, extremist politics and the far right and xenophobia and will lead to the collapse of international order. Or, they've, times... or, or they've already been on the rise. Well, or, you know, or that the international, you know, the UN will disintegrate like the League of Nations, despite the fact that the UN has been around now for decades longer than the League ever, you know, ever was. So that there's always this kind of, that liberal internationalism can only survive by the recreation of crisis. And most recently, for instance, I mean, I, you know, I saw like um, with the deal that the Biden administration is trying to stitch together with um, the Bolsonaro government in Brazil. They're trying to pay off the Bolsonaro government billions in order to preserve the Amazon rainforest as a way to offset global carbon emissions and to prevent the Amazon rain, you know, to perpetuate the Amazon rainforest as a carbon sink. Um, and that this has been the Biden administration's um, uh, kind of negotiations have been criticized by environmental NGOs as being appeasement. You know, so it's an extension, an appeasement of the Bolsonaro government. So it's an extension mm. of the um, of the debates and the logic of the 1930s of the kind of anti-fascism and the idea that we're constantly on the brink of some cataclysmic breakdown in order, a breakdown in political order and a descent from our um, kind of our limited gains that we have into some kind of pit of barbarism. And this and is the way liberal yeah. internationalism legitimates itself. So insofar as it's a legitimate, you know, insofar as it's intellectually legitimate to make the comparison, I think it reflects the reality of international politics itself. And this is what I think I'd like kind of the readers to take away from the book is to think about how our kind of our thinking about international politics tells us something about the underlying structure of international power. So I just wanted to return to something in the book, which I found really interesting. Um, a lot of it, or the middle chapter is dedicated to two sorts of theories, which you, which are supposedly critical, but you cast as, or you charge with being utopian, constructivist and critical theory. Um, and it struck me reading that, I mean, maybe it'd also be interesting if for you to explain a little bit, because you haven't spoken so much about that, about that section of the book, to first maybe briefly explain what your criticisms of those are actually before I make my um, before I make my point. Yeah, so there are two kind of um, very influential theoretical strains, um, very prevalent, you know, kind of widely studied and um, applied and used. Um, in the discipline with students and scholars and social political scientists and what have you. And constructivism is the idea that um, identity, I mean, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm kind of uh, summarizing and condensing, but the essential claim is that identity trumps interest. And so that um, you don't have a kind of a hard, a hard interest, which is prior to identity, but rather that if you have kind of these flexible, malleable identities, which are socially constructed, it's possible to change identity. And therefore, it's possible to potentially create a kind of a more harmonious international order. A change of identity will change interests and people will relate to each other in new ways and we're able to kind of transcend the conflicts of the past. And critical theory, obviously, is... Um, 
has its roots in all sorts of radical politics. Um, and the idea there is um, that there, you know, we have to, we have to relate, um, we have to relate our ideas to what our aspirations are. And so the famous kind of slogan of critical theory is all theory is for some purpose, um, which was one of the um, claims made by Rob, the late Robert Cox, who is one of the kind of great critical theorists of the discipline. And so there are two streams, um, and I say that both of them are actually far less critical than they think, and despite whatever they claim about themselves, they're both, in effect, um, liberal theories of international politics, even though they claim not to be. Yeah, and so what I found interesting in that, I mean, I remember like being quite drawn to these sorts of theories when I studied IR as an undergrad, um, because it got beyond the kind of stale division between like liberal idealists and and hard-headed re- and kind of often conservative realists. And so you could say, well, you know, maybe we could imagine the world to be different to, to what it actually is, get beyond just the sort of naked conflict of, of interest and so on. Not conflict of interest, but conflicting, um, you know, conflicting interests in the international arena. Um, but it also struck me reading about your description of Robert Cox, which was really interesting about you know, this idea that he tried to induce a bit of reflexivity in the theorist. So to think like, okay, if you're theorizing something, think about your own position and what you're trying to, what, what your own purpose is. And that all seems pretty useful. Like in your, and, and I think you can see that like, well, actually there's a, there's quite a lot of usefulness to it. And it struck me then thinking about kind of critical theory, let's say in the most broad sense, and probably including a lot of post-structuralist thought about kind of all sorts of new forms of supposedly radical social thought from the past 40, 50 years, um, a lot of it actually is a useful corrective. Um, And that's kind of what you're saying about critical theory in IR, that it was kind of a useful corrective to a lot of the dominant strains in IR thinking, Um, even certain constructionist elements being like, well, actually, you know, maybe state's identity does matter, that it's not, you can't just take a state's uh, interest, national interest for granted, that different states will behave differently because they have um, different constitutions, you know, a revolutionary state will act differently to a very conservative monarchy or whatever, right? Things like that. Yeah, that's a good corrective. And I thought that applies to kind of critical, supposedly critical theory across the board, isn't it? That what that it was, like, it's kind of a corrective theory. A lot of this stuff emerges from as a critique within against the establishment or even against the the left-wing establishment, maybe Stalinism or laborism, which then becomes completely unmoored and becomes self-standing. So you can think of like feminism, where feminism, the the you know the famous slogan, the personal is political, starts off as a critique of machismo within left-wing organizations. And that's quite useful. Um, I think they're right to make that critique. But then it becomes unmoored and becomes a general slogan for politics as a whole. The personal is political, which has become almost hegemonic today. In fact, it probably is hegemonic today. The boundaries between private and public have been completely broken down and have been broken down by by elites, by states, by power um, as a whole. And, you know, you can think of other examples here as well, Um, like ecological Kind of criticisms. You can say, well, that's a useful corrective to um, Soviet late industrialization, which laid waste to, to huge areas of, of, of uh, sort of natural Russia um, and had terrible feedback effects natural on Russia. human populations. Huh? Natural Russia. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to natural say that. Whatever. Mother you know, Russia. Of the natural world holy, in Russia. Holy Mother Russia. <laughs> um, yeah, I should probably rephrase that. But anyway, you know what I'm getting at. Um, 
that basically you know polluted water yeah. and whatever, etc. Um, yeah. And that's useful. And that's a useful critique, a useful corrective. But then it becomes a self-standing, unmoored perspective um, of ecological thought, which ends up becoming quite reactionary even. And so I think, I don't know, it, it struck me that this kind of applies a lot across the board, that what starts off as a useful corrective has then become uh, unmoored, self-standing, and ends up becoming hegemonic and, uh, and uh, handmade into power. Yes, I mean, my sympathy, you know, certainly with um, my sympathy, you know, certainly kind of uh, when I started studying all this um, about 15 years ago now, um, was as an undergraduate, I mean, my sympathies were kind of with you, you know, in the sense of that it seemed to me kind of more um, intellectually stimulating, productive and useful to go beyond understanding international politics purely in terms of, um, you know, counting who has, so, you know, so many tanks and uh, rockets and so on, which was the kind of, but, you know, again, I mean, that was partly a stereotype of what the discipline supposedly had been in the Cold War that was taught to us as a foil for introducing these new ideas um, in the kind of undergraduate lecture hall. Um, and I'm a, you know, I'm still kind of an admirer, though, a critical admirer of Robert Cox. Um, and like you say, so when he said theory is always for some purpose, what he was trying to do was to try to kind of cultivate a sense of reflexivity, um, a, to encourage scholars, students, um, analysts of international politics to reflect on um, how their own ideas were shaped by the um, context and how various kind of underlying power structures would be expressed through their own ideas, as well as through the ideas of the people they're criticizing. Mm. What that has become, though, right, is theory is always for some purpose, is become now simply like um, what kind of a critical, a critical, you know, a queer kind of critic of um, international law and animal studies or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm caricaturing, but only slightly. The idea is now that you simply state your purpose, and if your purposes are good, then your theory is good. And so it's kind if of- If you become, build it, they will come. It's it, become fl it's flipped over. I'm not sure that's the same thing. So it's a statement yeah, it instead, of, instead of kind of being an injunction to, to relating yourself to your own context, it's become a announcement of normative intent. And obviously everyone has good normative intentions and this is a way to essentially legitimate your own kind of claims. So-, so Despite so IR has become political, but the, the politics, small p political, but the politics precedes um, precedes a theory. In fact, I wanted to... Well, well, and, and it's not become okay, analytical, just, right? It stopped becoming kind of... It stopped becoming analytical. analytical. I wanted, I yeah, wanted to pick, I I wanted to pick just before, up on... Just before you do on, that, okay. George, yeah, just to, so just to kind of um, uh, wrap up the answer to Alex is, I think, but the seeds are contained in the earlier claims... You know, so, I mean, um, the point about Robert Cox is he banks on the third world and he admits like towards the end of his life, he admits that he was a Jacobite, you know, so Jacobitism, the um, the kind of the revanchism of um, the failed kind of attempt to reinstall the Stuart dynasty in England um, is the, you know, he kind of he's sympathetic with this, with kind of the lost cause. And it's the romance of the lost cause that draws him to the idea of third world emancipation and revolt. He knows that it has kind of very definite limits, but he feels by, you know, by his own admission in an interview towards the end of his life, he kind of feels drawn to the underdog. The same way that the Whigs were kind of wiping out the Jacobites, he feels drawn to the third world standing up against the American empire. But, you know, it's gone. The third world went with the end of the Cold War. There is no independent position now between Moscow and Washington. He bet on the wrong course. So the seeds 
um, you know, it's not just, it's not that it became kind of, um, that it went too far or that it was a corrective. I think the seeds of its own, um, of its own kind of the problems were laid earlier and they can be identified in the intellectual choices made by people like by Robert Cox earlier um, in the 20th century. So something which you, you both picked up on studying IR as undergraduates and, and beyond that. And I, so I had a question about something you, you, you pick up in the book, just a, a question in two parts. The first thing is that you say, you know, for who indeed would want to study domestic politics with the like of the likes of Tony Blair, Jacques Chirac, Lionel Jospin, uh, Schroeder, Clinton in charge. You know, well, who, who indeed? Um, but you know, some of us uh, on this pod, on <laughs> who this the podcast, hell remembers Lionel Lionel Jospin. You know, some, so we just about remember Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. Who the hell is Gerhard Schroeder and Lionel Jospin? Well, some, some, uh, that's just being Anglo centric. <laughs> no, no, but it's a serious point, right? But the, because Lionel Jaspin was defeated. Yeah. You know, he was a socialist yeah, yeah, but defeated Schroeder, by Jean Marie Le Pen, you know? But Schroeder I mean, was, was important. So, no, sure. And, but so was Jaspin, right? But I mean, they're defeated yeah. kind of figures, you know? So the, and the, so the question, I guess, that, that, that comes out of this is how, um, how the, the kind of the impulse. To, let me put this in the right way. The, the impulse to study IR or the looking for problems internationally, like who does that appeal to? And and what sort of, you know, I'd, I'd put in my notes, you know, what what's the role of IR in the socialization of the PMC? And I don't think that's, that's maybe not quite right. But certainly when I was teaching um, students at the University of Leiden um, in the Netherlands, you know, they all wanted to work for the EU. This was their, there was an area studies Europe course um, and, you know, they wanted to work for NGOs, ideally the EU, that kind of specific um, impulse to, to kind of have a, a high status, internationally focused uh, job solving kind of the big problems of the world and bringing peace and justice um, globally. So, yeah, I mean, what's what's what is the role of IR in the in the kind of the socialization of this of these cohorts of people who will work in? Um, international institutions, NGOs of various sorts. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is a part of the. It's a claim I make in the book, and I imagine Alex, as a former um, LSE IR twink, will um, will have his own an LSE <laughs> is that a IR thing? twink. It's definitely no. a thing. He will remember this. I mean, he's not a twink anymore, but you know when he was. So, but yeah, I mean, I make the claim that IR, the kind of the MA in IR or inter, in the MA in IR or international relations or international relations adjacent disciplines, such as peace and conflict or terrorism studies or critical terrorism studies or international law or human rights or you know, there's a there's a whole gamut of them. But they were crucial to socializing a whole generation. Of, um, of particularly kind of ambitious, um, kind of bright, young, kind of middle-class um, uh, students, um, young people. And it was a very important part of politics at the end of history because the, the appeal of it, right, was, um, un, was that it allowed you to kind of vault over your own society, to distance yourself from your own society because at the end of history, obviously, all major problems had been resolved, right? There were no fundamental conflicts at home. And so the most important problems were essentially those of resolving kind of mopping up operations. You know, what was left at the end of the at the end of history was like, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict or, um, I don't know, like, um, you know, kind of uh, gender rights in 
um, Tibet or Nepal or, you know, kind of it was all seen as kind of marginal. The big problems that were left were all kind of um, residual mopping up operations um, because the central questions of politics had been settled in the core, in the advanced liberal democracies, the advanced, um, the advanced capitalist societies of the West. And so this, so the MA in international relations, the postgraduate study, that was the kind of entry ticket to um, working for, or for those who aspired at least to work for, um, for their foreign services, for the institutions of the European Union, for major kind of NGOs, for major think tanks. Um, kind of globalist mandarins, I guess. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So kind of aspirant globalist mandarins, you know, the um, MA in international relations and the adjacent kind of um, qualifications were very similar to the MBA. Um, you know, kind yeah. of so, and it was those two, I think, were your ticket to being kind of a globalist, you know, maybe if you're more kind of Mandarin inclined, NGO inclined, kind of IO inclined, you would or go. Or you have maybe, a good, or you have a good heart. Yes. And you're not just about that, that filthy you're lucre. Not, yeah. You would go for the MA and IR. And if you were kind of more, um, you know, kind of more motivated by money, you might go for the MBA. And so those were the kind of the two choices for the kind of globalist elite. Um, and those who aspired to be the globalist elite. So it it was a very important. So international relations isn't just kind of. Uh, I suppose the, the the point is this, right? It wasn't. It's not just a kind of a particular um, academic field for understanding international politics. It was also an engine of socialization for a whole cadre of people who would go on to become NGO apparatchiks, um, civil international civil servants, domestic civil servants, um, and even, you know, black bloc protesters at the anti-globalization um, riots of the late 1990s, early 2000s, where there was the idea that you could kind of, um, you know, directly kind of affect global politics by protesting outside the conferences of the mm. World Bank or the IMF without needing to engage in the messy, in the messy kind of national politics of um, parochial interests within your own state. Yeah, avoid parochialism at, at all costs. Um, in terms of, I guess maybe just to, to to wrap it up and look and look forward, what's next? What comes next? So, you know, this period is is over. I'm not going to ask you to predict what like what comes after COVID or any of that sort of thing, but you know, you've you've you've, you've kind of explained how the study of IR is tied to. Um, this unipolar globalization, this liberal international order in decline. Um, you know what? What's what's going to be its role in in American hegemony in the next in the next twenty years? Do you have any? Do you have any hot takes on this? I suppose. I mean, the so the take home point, I suppose, would be that U.S. hegemony. I mean, obviously, it's not to say that U.S. hegemony is a function of international relations as as uh, as an academic study or as an ideology, but rather that international relations is a function of US hegemony. And that will be its status, its position, and the various kind of theoretical claims that are made by um, people studying in the discipline. All of these things will be transformed as the margin of US power erodes. So I don't think the US is you know, going to be overtaken by China or anything like that imminently. But certainly the margin of US kind of supremacy is going to be eroded. And that will have significance for um, international politics as well as how we think about it. Um, I suppose I'd finish on this. So what's really interesting and striking to me is how, and I suppose this is the question I'd want our listeners to go away and think about, is 
you're, give, is... you're, you're giving them homework. This is no, what no, no, no. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, feel free to get in touch, um, patron listeners in particular, or any others, you know, on, on Facebook or Twitter. But I suppose the question is, how important is geopolitical rivalry to changing politics? Because um, one thing that's really striking is uh, how, so at the moment, like the Biden, various Biden economic programs are very much in the news as they're being kind of propagated. And so many of them are being justified by reference to a lot, of, or at least some of them are being justified by reference to the need to beat China. And so there's in the head of um, Biden's National Economic Council, Brian Deese, if, he, if listeners want to go and check out an interview with him done recently on the New York Times pod, he justifies, he kind of, he has a tremendously ambitious, or, well, a rel- you know, much more ambitious than usual economic program. And he justifies it not only in economic terms, but also in terms of social policy as a renewed vision for America about the need to kind of restore the status of the American worker, about the need to bring kind of industry back home because these overextended supply lines are now kind of Mm. geopolitically vulnerable um, because China is a state capitalist system which an American needs to adapt to become more state capitalist to meet the kind of geopolitical challenge posed by China. And so I suppose this is um, the thought is how far geopolitical rivalry leads to a revival of politics, because the whole point of my book is to critique the era in which the claim was that we transcended the pettiness of political competition between states. And if you have political competition between states again, does that have a kind of um, does that have significant ramifications for politics as a whole? I are at the end of the end of history. So yeah, thanks thanks for for joining us, Phil. As, Thanks for uh, having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we'll have you on again at some point. Uh, we'll d- don't call us. We'll we'll call you. But thanks a lot <laughs> for your time this evening. And uh, yeah, <laughs> see you next time.
there's a kind of deeper sense of, of imperial overreach, more than just crazy military adventures. The post-Cold War period is like, we've already won and we're going to keep obliterating you. And, and which ends up coming home to roost, as we're seeing now, you get populist eruptions and so on against this order. And it seems to me like that's a correlate of what happened in international politics. Yeah, so revisionism is a, is a more technical term from the study of international politics. And the idea is revisionist that the the kind of the classical era of revisionist states has taken to be the interwar period. Um, so those powers who are excluded or in some ways oppressed or dissatisfied with the outcome of the Paris peace treaties at the end of the First World War, that they wish to revise that the outcome of that. You know, the kind of classical revisionist states are Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. So one of the debates right now is, you know, is China a revisionist power or not? And what I suggest in the book is that what happens very weirdly at the end of the Cold War is the status quo powers are the ones who are revisionist. And this is kind of unexpected, that the US kind of um, becomes increasingly hubristic and overambitious and effectively goes on a rampage. There is no need for it because it's already on top and it's already won the Cold War. Why is there the need to spread democracy to places like Iraq? Um, or to bomb Libya, or to try and overthrow the regime in Syria, or to make sure that women have rights in Afghanistan. I mean, there's no kind of geopolitical necessity to any of these conflicts. It's a kind of remarkable and strange thing. And this is why I say it's inverted revisionism. You need kind of um, to acknowledge the sheer irrationality and the wantonness of the destruction of Iraq, for instance, on the basis of what's essentially a naive liberal idealism. I'm not quite sure there's an exact correlate in domestic politics, and it's an intriguing thought, but I'm not sure there's an exact fit. I'm very skeptical of the idea of saying that Western liberal democracies, for all their kind of pettiness and crudity and oppressiveness, particularly in the wake of lockdown, that they're you know totalitarian in any meaningful way. No, but, but total um, in the sense, totalizing in the sense of not really having any real opposition anymore. I mean, if we're talking about the end but of the But they didn't, period. but I'm not sure that they, you know, kind of pursued their victory and also that they rampaged. You know, it seems to me that there was... There was didn't they? The, the, the increase in state power, the increase in surveillance, all this stuff, which is unnecessary no, sure, to manage that, populations because the population was already quiescent. You no, know, sure, but I'm not sure that they, that they were driven, that they was driven by this kind of um, hubristic attempt to, to extend... Um, the gains that had already been made. And it seems to me there was also kind of many attempts to um, to pacify domestic populations, but in a way that was um, kind of uh, manipulative and soft coercion rather than kind of the outright brutality that we saw with the forever war. 